Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. And I have got a guy on my podcast who has a new book, Surviving a Startup. Now, if you are if you are in a startup business and you feel like it's duck and cover, this is a, a conversation you really need to listen to. Or maybe you're just feeling like life's a little bit of duck and cover. You just never know. Steve Hoffman helps startups, mentors hundreds of entrepreneurs every year and how to grow and scale their business. He is also the author of the book, The Five Forces That Change Everything and Make Elephants Fly. And he's going to let us know what we can do to help entrepreneurs increase their odds, how to accelerate and bulletproof a new business. But he's also going to tell his story. And it's an honor for me to have Steve Hoffman on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Steve, how are you today? I am great. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to have you. Let's start here. And, and I've been asking this conversation for the last 15 to 16 months, maybe closer to 17 months. And, and it's still a relative conversation. It's a relative starter to start conversation. Talk me or take me through the last 16, 17 months in your world, because everybody has dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic, and as we record this, we are well on the downslope of this thing. More and more uh, businesses are getting back to normal. More and more people are getting back to normal. Um, you know, I, I don't see as many people wearing masks in public as I did before. So it, it, it's, it, it is as if things are finally back to normal. What have the last, uh, what have the last 15 or 16 months been like for you personally and professionally? They have been radically different. My life changed so much since COVID. Prior to COVID, I was traveling 70% of the time, all over the world, working with entrepreneurs, helping them grow their business, investing in them. It was an amazing experience. And suddenly it all came to a stop. We even had to shut down our founder space, incubator and accelerator, in Silicon Valley because we couldn't have people indoors. So that was a huge change. I moved everything online, but I made good use of the isolation that COVID provided because I actually ended up writing two books during that period. The ones you mentioned, Surviving a Startup and The Five Forces. And so it gave me a breather from all that travel to actually reflect on everything I've been learning throughout my life about being entrepreneurs, about helping people, inspiring people, and put that into the books themselves. You know, I got to ask you this because I, I traveled pre-pandemic. I traveled. I was gone. Not quite that much, but I overnighted a couple nights a week. And so I was away from my family a couple nights a week myself. How much of, I know what a shock to the system it was for me not to travel. How much of a shock to your system was it for you not to travel? Because I, I asked that, and there are going to be people that are listening that are, that are road warriors. 
that travel for a living that, that, that are used to, you know, I, I know where everything is in the airport. I know where, you know, how, how much time it takes me to get through security. I know all the ins and outs of travel. And, and I was the same way. I know how long it takes me to get from point A to point B. How much of a shock to your system was it for you not to travel? Because you mentioned the good use of isolation, but I got to think that it was a little bit to, a shock to the system not to travel. It was a shock. So first of all, I had to just totally reorient myself. So I was used to the excitement of travel, the energy the, that you gain when you're out on the road, when, you're, when, you're, when there's always something new, some adventure around the corner that you don't expect. Even if it's a disastrous thing, like your flight being delayed, it still gets yeah. that adrenaline pumping. So I had to channel all that energy in a different way. And uh, at first, the transition was, I have to admit, it was tough. It was depressing not to be able to go out into the world and do what I was used to doing. And I had to reorient my mind. I had to rethink about making new challenges for myself. And that's really why I, I put in front of myself new goals. I think the way to manage transition, the way to not get depressed when what you had expected to happen doesn't always happen, is to quickly assess, well, what can I do in this situation? And it's the tr same is true when you're an entrepreneur. A lot of times you have all these plans, everything's set, you're going a direction and suddenly reality intervenes. And, it's, and you cannot go that way. There's a huge roadblock in front of you. So I did what I coach my entrepreneurs to do, I looked at it, I assessed it, and I said, I just have to re I have to pivot. I have to rethink everything and set new goals and, and a new way of accomplishing overall what I want to accomplish. I love what you said there about doing what you coach your entrepreneurs to do, because a lot of times coaches are seen as the experts. It's why people hire them. Um, and I think of, I think of, uh, coaches that I've worked with when my son played high school basketball or high school baseball, the, the, the kids you're coaching at that level in high school look to you as the expert. Well, you need to tell me how to do this correctly, or you need to show me how to do this correctly. And a lot of times, you know, it's, it's you're here and, and the people you're working with are here. If you're listening, I'm, I'm making a, a little bit of a difference here. But now coaching people, you're right there in the same boat as a lot of the people that you coach. How did you flip your mindset to continue to add that value to your clients while literally being on that same playing field with them? Because, and I'm not saying that to say that I'm better than you or think that that's not what I'm saying. You hire, as I mentioned a moment ago, you hire a coach because they bring you something you didn't have. Now everybody is on a level playing field. We're all at home. We're all working. We're all transitioning. We're all dealing with change. How did you bring extra value to your clients in that midst of a level playing field? That is a great question. It is all, always a challenge. So first of all, uh, just because I mentor, coach entrepreneurs, write books, invest in startups, doesn't mean I don't face my own challenges on a daily basis. So even if you're a coach or a mentor, you often, it's good to have a coach and a mentor because it, 
life just throws things at you and it's good to get other perspectives. So one way to do that is to go to people you trust and, and ask what they're doing or what they would do if they were in your shoes, people with a lot of experience. You know, I myself, I'm always reaching out. I have a very deep network of friends and colleagues, uh, people working in the same industry. And, you know, I was asking them, what should I do in this? What would you do in this situation? And they come back to me with all sorts of advice. You know, I, they've read my previous book, Make Elephants Fly. They knew I was a good writer. They were like, you should probably, uh, you know, head this direction. Yeah. And then there's a personal process that's involved. And that is uh, reshaping how you think, what your reward system is, what gets you up in the morning. Now, certain things, like when I was traveling, you know, the excitement of interacting with people personally, giving talks, you know, at conferences, doing deals in the way I was used to doing them face-to-face -face or over dinner. You have to rethink how you're going to do that and how you're going to add value. And I realized that, you know, just you can connect with people. We're all living in a new reality. We all have to communicate remotely. So everything is going to get done that was done before. It's just going to get done in a different way. You know, Steve, I love what you said there and, and what triggered that thought as you were talking about having dinner with people and, and that face-to-face that -face connection and interaction and things like that. Here's what I learned from the pandemic. The greatest customers that I had to take care of were the two other people that I live with, my wife and my, uh, my college-age son. And my wife said something to me the other day, and I want to share this in the conversation because I, I, I think it fits here. My wife said to me the other day, as you get back to traveling, I hope you don't lose what you gained in the pandemic. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you were more attentive. You were more in the moment. You were more present. You were more there. It's not that you weren't before. You just heightened that. And, and we're so conscious of taking care of customers and especially for startups you're trying to get as many things done as you can attract as many customers as you can and a lot of times i think we forget the one-to-one -one connection with people especially people closest to us and so for me that was a a light bulb moment of wow what i didn't understand that i did during the pandemic was my wife noticed that i was connecting more with her and we've been married almost 25 years. I was connecting more with my son. I, I want to go here for just a minute before we step aside and move to, to your, your new book. How important is the, the personal connections that people have with those closest to them? And I, and I especially want to speak here for just a moment to those people that are starting a business because everybody's excited. Everybody's all in. And, and maybe it's scary for the wife whose husband is starting a new business or the husband, the wife is starting a new business and, and they're trying to be supportive and they're all in. How important is that con internal connection with those closest to you in moments like that? Let me tell you, I think the personal relationships you have define who you are. Anybody can go out there and do business. Anybody uh, who focuses on it can make some money. 
but who you are is how you treat those closest to you. Uh, those people you have the most responsibility for, those people you really care for you and you depend on and they depend on you. So for me, with my family, I am extremely close and I have spent, I spent a lot of time with them. But even though I was traveling a lot, a lot of times my family would travel with me. So it wasn't as if we were always separated. Now, of course, my sons are older. Uh, they're in college, so they're off on their own. But my wife, she uh, would come with me around the world. And when, when that stopped, we were sort of in it together. But we run our business together. So we are partners, not just in uh, the home, but we are also partners in work. And we collaborate together deeply. And um, we have worked together throughout our lifetime on multiple companies. And that bond there, we just transitioned our energy together because we have the same goals, because we are really used to collaborating together on a creative level, on a business level. We could actually, uh, that actually could sustain me. It wasn't that bad and it wasn't that uh, hard because we were doing it as partners. Steve, I know I said we were going to take a break, but I got to ask one. I, I got to go here for just a minute. You mentioned your wife, your business partner traveling all over the world. And, and my wife has done some traveling with me on business in a, in a past life. I've got to ask you, though, some people want to separate their home life and their business life. And some people say, well, I could never work with my wife. Or I could never work with my husband. What are what is what the one thing? that your wife brings most to your business that is indispensable to it? My wife is very different from me. She is very uh, deeply attentive to detail. She is extremely organized. She is also very creative. And what she does is she handles a lot of the parts of the business that I'm not so good at. So I like to tell entrepreneurs out there, whenever, if you want to be successful, it doesn't have to be your wife. I just got lucky in, in that my wife has those skills and that we communicate well and we work together and we have this really deep bond. But you have to find people, you have to surround yourself with people who complement your skills, who fill in the gaps. Like none of us can be good at everything. Most of us are good at one or two things. And really, to be successful, you should put 90% of the energy into the things that you are incredible at, the things you really shine at, and then let other people do all the other pieces. So my wife is like another half of our business self. So if you look at our business self as one thing, we each kind of do half of what's necessary. Like she would never be on a podcast. She would never want to give a talk in public. She, that isn't her nature. She's very, she wants to recede into the background. Whereas I am always pushing myself into the foreground, yet I need somebody to, to back me up because a lot of things would get dropped if she wasn't there. She yeah. follows up on all that organizational stuff. So that, that really helps me. And then communication. Like naturally, because we're married, we have a deep level of communication. We talk, we share things. 
Um, so that makes it so much easier. We're always together discussing what needs to be done with the next steps we're taking. I think if you can do that with your spouse, more power to you. That's great. Yeah. I know not everybody can, their spouse can't be all things to them. Yeah. So, but it is important to find other people who you can uh, rely on in the same way. I love that. That is so good because again, um, and I love what you said there about your wife brings something to the table. And, 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 and that's why they say opposites attract. My wife is very detail oriented. I'm more creative brain thinking. I, you know, I have grandiose ideas. She's more detailed and oriented. And, and so it, it just works. I love that. That is so good. Let's step aside, take a break. When we come back, I want to dive into Steve's new book, Surviving a Startup. And here's what I want to share with you. What you can do as an entrepreneur to increase your odds. Steve's going to tell you about that. You want to increase your odds? That's encouragement right there. That is intentional encouragement, increasing your odds of success. You're going to find out how in just a moment with my guest, Steve Hoffman, back on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Hey everybody, Brian Sexton here. I want to tell you about our sponsor, SEO National. SEO stands for Search Engine Optimization. Now, what's that, you might say? Well, Search Engine Optimization helps you show up higher on search engines in front of paying customers for words that you as a business owner can monetize. What a great concept. SEO National is owned by my good buddy, Damon Burton, who's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Not only has Damon and his team worked with businesses of all sizes, from e-commerce startups to NBA teams and Shark Tank featured businesses, but more importantly, Damon and his team are about transparency, trust, and providing lifetime value. So much so that he still has his first customers after opening SEO National 14 years ago. Let me give you some intentional encouragement and call Damon and his team today at 855-736-6285 or go to www.seonational.com and get a free quote. Steve, let's dive into your new book, Surviving a Startup. And, and you mentioned in just a moment ago that, that you wrote two books in, in the middle. It was hard enough for me to write one, and you cranked out two in the midst of a, a pandemic, surviving a startup. I want to go here for just a minute. I don't want to understand why startups fail. Here's the question I want to start this, this segment with. Why are most people afraid to start a, a business? What's the biggest thing that you have found that caused people not to even start a startup? Most people are afraid of the failure itself. They are afraid, uh, and rightly so, uh, that doing a startup is very risky and they don't want to take the plunge and then not succeed. But I will tell you, if you have dreams and you want to accomplish them in your lifetime and they are, some, and they are big dreams, then you are going to have to take risk. And we see all these startups that are incredibly successful. Well, they are successful because they are doing things that nobody has done before. And that inherently involves risk. So a lot of people just can't handle risk. Like they, they're very risk averse. Well, Steve, let me jump in here. 
I, I, I love where you're going with this conversation. I love where you're going with that. I think people are risk averse because they see or they think they have a, a relatively easy path to success. In other words, we have, we have had folks start businesses on cell phones. We've had people start businesses and they go on Shark Tank and they do this and they, and those are great things. Those have all helped fuel the, the entrepreneurial spirit. What I see is a lot of people think, well, I've got a great idea. And I saw this in the restaurant business. I was in the restaurant business for 15 years. You're talking about a high failure industry. I saw people that said, well, grandma had a good biscuit recipe. So therefore I'm going to, I'm going to open up this restaurant because grandma had this great biscuit recipe. And you may have thought grandma's biscuits were all that in a bag of chips, but everybody else told you grandma's biscuits sucked. They were terrible. And so, you know, it was like, you know, just because you have a great idea, it, it's, it's almost like you go full speed ahead with it and you take that risk instead of saying, but is the market really ready for this? Is, is this something that, that will, the market will support? What, what is a hard question that most people that start businesses fail to ask themselves? Most people that start businesses do exactly what you said. They get excited by the idea and they are just, they fall in love with the idea and then they just quit whatever they're doing and jump into it. Now, sometimes this works out great. Oh, you, forgive me for jumping in. Would you repeat what you just said? That, that was gold right there. Please say that again for, for the listeners. So people, you know, fall in love with their ideas, but one thing you have to understand as an entrepreneur is just because you love an idea doesn't mean other people love it. And what really matters when you are building a business is that other people love whatever you are giving them, whatever you are making for them, you are producing. So some entrepreneurs think it's all passion. Like the more passion, if I have enough passion, if I try hard enough, if I love my idea enough, it will work. But that's not how the real world works. Steve, you you have triggered a, another point that I, that I want to bring up. And, and let's take the conversation here for just a minute. It seems like we have gotten to the point where we have American idolized entrepreneurship. We have made it about, um, well, you know, grandma told little, little Sarah Jane that she can sing. And so now Sarah Jane thinks she's the next American Idol. And Sarah and Jane, yeah, and Sarah Jane gets in front of a professional judge and professional judges go, you don't have the goods. You're just not good enough. How is it, how important is it to keep reality in check when you're trying to start a business? Because I, I don't want to squelch the idea. Nobody's saying squelch your idea, but how important is it to put a reality behind what you're trying to do in your startup? Having a good focus on what is real is absolutely essential to success. So you can, you can be as passionate as you want, and it's really important to have that passion. But at the end of the day, you have to go out into the real world and make that connection 
between what you are offering your customers and what they really need. Now, this is where um, most entrepreneurs drop the ball. They get so excited by their idea, they fall in love with it. But I have a rule, love is blind. Like you can often fall in love with somebody and all your friends and your family say, You're a, that person's not right for you. I've you said just- that about marriage. I've said that about relationships and marriage, Steve. I've, I've said not only is love is blind, but sometimes it's deaf, dumb, and stupid too. Yes. And you don't want to be- not disparaging in those things. I'm just saying there are times when you don't hear things in a relationship you need to hear. And there, there are times that you're just so oblivious to things that are going on. It's like, okay, come on, dummy, wake up. You know, you, this is happening right in front of your face. I love what you said there about love is blind. Where do you think people have, get that concept from? Is it, is it external forces in the, in most cases? Or is it their their internal blindness? In other words, they've got blinders over their own eyes and they just fail to see what's right in front of them. Most people are blinded by by themselves, right? They do not, they do not allow themselves to see the contradictory information that's out there. And as an entrepreneur, to really be successful, you have to look at the world and see what's really there, what's really happening. It, it is tough to launch a product, but you can do it. And this is what I tell entrepreneurs. So first of all, you can love your product, but it doesn't matter how much you love your product. What matters is that your customer loves your product. You have to make a product that your customer absolutely falls in love with. That's all that matters. So keep your attention focused on that. Secondly, If you're gonna build this incredible product, it's probably not that first idea that popped into your head. It's usually a much longer journey to figure that out. Yeah. So in, or and also the idea itself, even if it's perfect at the beginning, you have to execute on this. It's not enough to have an idea. You actually have to take that idea, manifest itself into a product or service and bring that into the real world in a way that people can relate to, that people want, that feels a need, that requires more than you by yourself. Solo entrepreneurs almost always fail. The ones that succeed, and we see this, I work in Silicon Valley, we see it all the time. I work with hundreds of entrepreneurs. The ones that succeed surround themselves with amazing people. So I like to say, when you first launch your company, don't spend a lot of time thinking of your idea. In fact, the idea can actually cripple you. It can make you fall in love with it and lock into it when it's probably not perfect and it may not even be the right idea. If you want to succeed, this is what you need to do. You need to, uh, first of all, throw out your idea and just pick a direction you want to head, an area you are passionate about working in. So let's say you want to bring out the best biscuits that are ever that were ever made and you have your grandma's recipe. You may think it's great, but it doesn't really matter how great you think it is. It matters how great the world think it, thinks it is. Well, and, so, and Steve, you're, you're, and forgive me for interrupting, but you're, you just said something really brilliant there is that, and I said this in my book, people buy connection before they ever make a transaction. If you want people to be, if you want people to, to be a part of your tribe, as Seth Godin talks about, They've got to be connected to it. And then they're going to go, okay, I'm connected to it. So now how do I get it? Where do I get it? 
you know, let, where, where, where can I get it? How can I, I don't care how much it is. What, tell me, tell me where I can get it, how I can get it. I want to ask you this before we take another break and we get into your story. What was an aha moment that you had writing surviving a startup? Because everybody that I've talked to, and even my, in my own personal experience, you had that aha moment where you just go, that's it. I, I, I started down this path, but I didn't realize this was going to come from that. Did you have an aha moment in writing surviving a startup? I did. My aha moment was when I reanalyzed what the role of an entrepreneur was. I always thought the role of a great entrepreneur, and this is the myth we hear out there, is somebody who can come up with that brilliant idea, that fully formed idea, and then has the passion to bring it to market. But I realized that the really successful entrepreneurs in the world don't do this at all. They do something very different. What they do is they actually go into the world without an idea, but with an open mind, and they start hunting for future demand. What I mean by that is they, they are hunting for an area where people are demanding something that they really need that they aren't getting from anybody else out there. And that untapped demand is the source of all great new companies. Like it's like you're an oil wildcatter out there and you're sinking wells, right? And most of them are going to come up dry, but you hit one and it, and it just lets loose this gusher of people who are saying, I need this. I need this. I didn't know I needed it, but now that you have it, I just want it. That is the role of a great entrepreneur. So you look at people like Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk, everybody thinks he started Tesla. He didn't start Tesla. So he was actually just an early investor in the company. But when he saw the potential demand for this, he jumped on board. Yeah. And because he's so brilliant at executing, he could take that concept and just create, you know, this, the, you know, the biggest car company in the world from nothing. Um, same um, with Steve Jobs. Everybody thinks, oh, Steve Jobs, you know, he started with, you know, just coming up with brilliant ideas. Actually, he went into the world, found people that were already developing these, like Xerox Park did the whole Mac, you know, interface, user interface and experience. He was always borrowing from them and then matching it with demand in society. Yeah. You, you know, the iPod that was his, you know, that, that rebirthed Apple, you know, gave it a whole new life. Wasn't his original idea. There were MP3 players out there well before the iPod came along. He saw there was a huge demand for these MP3 players. What he did was conceive of a way to make it better, to fill that need in just the right way at just the right time. Yeah. And, and both those guys you mentioned, Steve, didn't care what other people thought. They, they put those things aside because you're always going to run into haters. You have had haters since the beginning of time. I mean, you can go to the scriptures and see where there were always people naysaying ideas. But you have to overlook that noise and just put that noise aside and go, I believe in this with every fiber of my being, and I'm going to pursue it no matter what and just and go you, after it. Having Believing it is really important because – being an entrepreneur is really hard. So you have to always uh, keep uh, faith that you will be successful in the long run. 
But at the same time, you have to look at what's actually happening in the real world. So the people who believe, I see this, like there are a lot of entrepreneurs, some who just believe without getting with, with blinders on. If you believe with blinders on, you, and you will invariably end up taking a wrong turn and just crashing. However, if you have your eyes open, you can always be course correcting because in the real world, things are always changing. The markets are changing. Competitors are coming out with new products. Nothing is ever the same. And you always have to be gathering the latest data and making changes to what's going on in order to figure out the right path forward. It, the process never ends. That is so good. That is so good. Let's step aside, take our last break. When we come back, I want to get into Steve's story. Incredible story. You're going to want to hear it. Come back. My guest, Steve Hoffman, with me today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Back in a moment. Hey, everybody. Brian Sexton. want to tell you about my new book, People Buy From People, 10 Powerful People Lessons from the Ultimate People Person, my dad. My dad was one of the greatest connectors that I ever knew. And he shared with me 10 connecting principles that I have used throughout my 25-year sales and sales management, customer engagement, and leadership career that I'm passing along to you. If you want to be a stronger, deeper, and more powerful connector, you've got to pick up a copy of People Buy From People. There are concepts in there that you may not realize help make you a power connector. You can go to Amazon and pick it up. Kindle, if you're an e-reader and you like to do it that way, or now available on Audible. And there's one other way you can get a copy of People Buy From People. You can get one from me and I'll sign it for you. You go to intentionalmediaandpublishing at gmail.com and send me an email and I'll share with you the link on how you can get a signed copy. You can buy a signed copy directly from me. Again, people buy from people. If you want to connect like never before, pick up your copy today of People Buy From People. And now let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Steve, let's get into your story. I want to I want you to take me as far back as you want to take me from point A to how you got here and just talk me through the story of your life. My life has been really unpredictable. I like to say I've had more careers than cats have had lives. So I've it's not like I just tried one thing and it worked. I tried many things and many of them didn't work. But all you need in life to really be successful, and this is what I tell people, is one big success. Like you just need to hit it right once. And so don't be afraid to try. Don't be afraid to go out there and try a lot of stuff and have a lot of it fail and then eventually wind up in a good place. I started actually as an electrical computer engineer because my father thought that was the safest path to a successful career. I didn't, I wasn't passionate about that. I didn't want it. I didn't care about spending all my time working on building electronics or even sitting at a computer coding. I wanted to go out into the real world and I wanted to be creative. So I actually, as soon as I got my electrical engineering degree, 
jumped into film and television. And that opened up a whole new world for me. Did you and your dad have any, forgive me for for interrupting there, but I I, want to pull just a a tad bit more conversation around that. Did you and your dad have, have angst moments around your life path? Because there are a lot of father and sons that dad will say, I, I think you should do this. And, and the son said, well, my, my, my son and I are like that. I, I wanted my son to go into business and marketing. He chose mechanical engineering. Okay. At, at, at some point as a dad, you got to back off and say, okay, son, it's your, it's your life. You got to go do what you got to do. Were, were, those, were, were, were there ever those moments where that created some tension or angst between you and your dad? I was fortunate in that my dad is a very kind, supportive person. So I have a huge respect for him. He was actually a professor of rocket science at MIT. So he's really smart. And I list, you know, when he told me that computers are going to be the future, I listened to him and he was right. So studying electrical computer engineering actually didn't turn out to be that bad. But um, when I made the decision that I wanted to go a different direction, he didn't object. He said, fine, you know, if that's really what you want to do. And I think that's good parenting, right? He, yeah. he actually said, if that's really what you want to do, do it. I had taken his advice, not because I was forced to, but out of my respect for him. And in the end, that advice actually paid off because I actually ended up merging. I went into Hollywood. I worked as a Hollywood television executive, but then I saw an opportunity to merge uh, Hollywood with uh, and the entertainment side with technology. And I jumped over to Japan and started working in games, building, actually taking, uh, coming up with ideas for new types of games. I joined uh, the company Sega at the time, which had just surpassed Nintendo as the number one video game company in the world. So it was perfect timing. I, I, I got to share this. You, you are, you're just blowing my mind right now because I can, you know, I am a college kid in the early nineties. So it's probably 92, 93. And I buy a Sega video game off of a guy that I worked with. And when the weather was not that great, or anything, my dad would come down into, in, I still lived at home. I was probably 20, 20, 21, 22, something like that. My dad would come downstairs and I had Sega Golf. And we would play Sega Golf together. You know, just just two dudes just, just playing video games. And my dad got to the point, he's like, this is kind of fun. I, I, I kind of like this. So when you said Sega, I was like, you know, ding, 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 ding. You know, it's it just that I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. And I've interrupted you a few times and I apologize for that. But you say things and it just triggers these these wonderful. My, my dad passed away almost nine years ago. So it triggers these wonderful memories that I have. When you moved into the video game market, let's talk about that for just a second. The video game market today, and, and I've. I had a Nintendo when I was probably 15 or 16 years old. And then you move to a Sega Genesis and then you move. And now the video games are just incredible. The AI that's involved in those games is just phenomenally good. You talked about your dad kind of seeing the future. 
what what did you what do you see now in that market that you couldn't have seen 20 or 25 years ago in the advancement of technology and and, and it's only going to get even better so today we have actually uh, created games that that are so realistic like if you look at the games at the time you know Sega had Sonic the Hedgehog but it was very primitive very pixelated i still saw in those early days the potential and i told people in hollywood they're like why are you leaving you actually became a development executive in the hollywood you can't leave and i said honestly i think games are going to be bigger than film and television and sure enough they've become yeah. bigger i mean just look at twitch just look at all the time people spend on these games well, and they're not just yeah look at pre pandemic all the times that that you know when when there's a a hot new release and, and here's where it's even going even even greater steve is the fact of you used to have kids that would stand out in front of a GameStop or a Walmart when there was a new release and they would camp out for it. Now, when there's a new release, one, it can be exclusive to that video game maker or that distributor, whether it's Sony with PlayStation or Nintendo with the Xbox and or Microsoft, excuse me, with the Xbox and, and things like that. But now video game makers can go, if you want this bad enough, you don't have to camp out anymore. We're going to drop this at midnight on this date, and all you got to do is go and you can download this thing with the right internet connection speed and everything else. You can get this instantaneously. It's moving that much faster. And it will continue. So we are going to see more and more immersive gaming in the future. We are just at the beginning. We Virtual worlds, which have been pretty primitive to date, are going to become at some point lifelike. So honestly, because every people don't even think about this, but our, our brain is literally just in a black box. We only know the outside world by the signals we receive through our eyes, yeah. through our ears, through our skin. These signals can be reproduced artificially. Now, already they have been, they have produced a bionic eye that can take signals and actually plug it straight into your brain. They have cochlear implants for hearing that can act like an ear, uh, taking those signals into your brain. We will uh, have the technology. It's actually in laboratories right now, if you do your research, so that we can actually create realistic simulations of worlds where we can actually feel we are totally in those worlds beyond virtual reality. That is what's coming in the next 20, yeah. uh, 30 years. That will be here. And that means that what we think of as the real world and what we think of as simulated world, those things are going to merge. And that that's where the future of gaming is going. I'm telling you right now, that that is where the future of a lot of our existence will be in the worlds that we actually fabricate. That, that is so cool. Steve, I, in, in the interest of time, I want to be respectful of your time and, and listeners' time. I want you to take me through the biggest obstacle that you've faced either personally or professionally and, and the lesson that you learned from it. Because again, we've talked about the stress of startups. We've talked about life and things like that. And I have so enjoyed this conversation. It's been fantastic. But take me through the biggest obstacle that you faced in your life and the biggest lesson you learned from it. The biggest obstacle was, you know, I left Sega. 
So Sega was an amazing job where I was designing games. And I came back to California, my home, and I launched my own game company. Now, the first game company I launched was incredibly successful. We, we made this game called Gazillionaire, which taught uh, children and adults how to be entrepreneurs. And it just took off like crazy, took off, got published worldwide. We did very well. We went on to release a series of games. Then I started a second company. And the second company I started with my friends. It was another gaming company. Only this time we tied the games to television. So we made interactive television shows. Our first customer, we landed MTV, Viacom. We did a big show on MTV, which synchronized the TV broadcast with online play. And that show actually did amazingly well. And then we raised a lot of venture capital, millions and millions of dollars in venture capital. We took on big amounts of debt. We became the biggest interactive TV company in the world at the time. And that was during the dot-com bubble. What we didn't know was that in a very short amount of time, that bubble would pop. And when it popped, we literally crashed. Like we came crashing down. All of our customers, all the big TV networks, you know, NBC, Warner Brothers, you know, History Channel, A&E, all these companies that were paying us lots of money suddenly cut everything they were spending on interactive TV. And our company was destitute. I was the CEO. I had never experienced failure like this. I had to lay off my whole team. The, we were in a crisis because we had a huge debt. We had borrowed lots of money. And the company that we had borrowed it from, they were in bankruptcy because all their startups had just crashed. And they sent an ex-Marine after me, they had hired an ex-Marine to collect their millions of dollars. And he was, it was like so much pressure. I uh, managed uh, to negotiate with him a deal where we gave him all of our intellectual property, our baby, everything we had been working on for years and years and years, we gave to them and then we walked away. Now we were lucky. We didn't go through bankruptcy. We literally paid off uh, basically exchanged our debt for our intellectual property. But I had lost it all. I had lost my dream. I had failed um, all my employees. They were all laid off. I blamed myself. And overcoming that was incredibly difficult. Wow. Wow. I can just imagine, you know, you have to lay off your team. And now they're sending an ex-Marine to, to come and basically shake you down for the debt. I mean, it's just, that's wild to think about. But I love the resilience that I saw in that moment. I'm putting myself in that moment. And I hope you, you know, as you listen to this, put yourself in that moment. How do you handle everything you work for in a moment's time just crashing down? Steve, I've got to ask you as we finish this incredible conversation. There may be folks that are listening to this that say, I'm there. I am right there. I, as you were just talking for a minute or two minutes, you were speaking into my world. Leave the folks today with your biggest piece of intentional encouragement. I will tell you, um, in my darkest moments, 
I was totally ready to give up. I thought, I'm not capable of doing this. I can't go through it again. It was too painful. And I shouldn't. I should just get a normal job and just have a normal life. But I knew if I made that choice, I would regret it forever. I was, I would feel like a failure forever. I think the only way to overcome failure is to actually go out and put yourself in that position again and go at it with all your energy and do not be afraid of failing a second or third time. You just have to tell yourself, and this is what I did, that I can fail as many times as it takes to eventually succeed. And none of those failures, as long as I'm breathing, none of those failures have killed me. So I can get up and do it again. It's all emotional, right? It's all how I feel. I'm the only one blocking my own path. So, so as soon as you push yourself aside and say, I'm just going to keep trying, I'm just going to keep going at it, suddenly a lot of doors open up. And that is what I found. Wow. That is so powerful. And, and I wrote down, and I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's okay to fail. It is okay to fail. Steve, tell folks where they can find your books, how they can connect with you, where they can get more of your incredible resources. So I'm very easy to find. Just go to founderspace.com. You can contact me. There's a contact button on the page, on the front page. You can contact me. You can also find me on all the social networks. So I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just search for Founderspace. I'm jotting that down. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Steve, I'm not allowed to have Instagram because my 21-year-old son's on Instagram and my wife's on Instagram and they don't want to hang out there with me. So, uh, but what an honor and a pleasure it's been to have you on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your story with us today. Thank you. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, at any time, any place can be an intentional encourager.